Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is taken from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 11. A life worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the Spirit striving together as one for faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Imitating Christ's Humility Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him in the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, today, before I uh, get into talking about that passage, there are two uh, exciting things about today. One, it's awesome, Michael, to have you with us on the drums. Michael has actually helped us with a number of our kind of the record, you know, the songs at the end of worship uh, that play, those are songs that uh, we do ourselves. And Michael's helped out with a couple and, and our Easter stuff. So it's awesome to actually have you with us. Your, uh, I love your, your, uh, your snare is laid back. I don't know if you listen to a lot of funk, but it's a great laid back snare. It's right in the pocket. It's awesome. Uh, the other thing that, no offense, Michael, even better than that is, as Abby pointed out, today Canada, for the first time ever, is celebrating emancipation. Finally, a civic holiday has a, has a title way better than civic holiday, but more important than changing the title is it's, it is amazing that Canada is, is finally the place where we have a day that we officially celebrate uh, the emancipation. So it's, it's, anyway, it's awesome. So let's, uh, let's, with that being said, let's um, look at this passage. Now, the scripture that uh, Karen read for us is actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible, particularly the last part of what she read. 
Now, if you haven't been uh, with us for a few weeks, it's in a book of the Bible that's called Philippians. It's a letter written by a guy named Paul, uh, written to a group of people that Paul dearly loved who live in the city of Philippi, hence it's called Philippians. And if this is your first time joining us this summer, we are going through the letter through, uh, you know, from chapter 1, verse 1 through to the end of it this summer. And uh, right here in the middle of the letter, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to his friends in the city of Philippi, and he writes this passage. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on hand, you're welcome to follow along in Philippians uh, chapter 2. We're looking specifically at chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And there's this beautiful ancient song right here in the middle of this letter. Now, I'm not sure if it's one of my favorite passages because of what it says, you know, this amazing picture of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, or if I love it because as a musician, I seem to always be drawn to places in scripture where there are song lyrics. I guess you could say I'm a music guy. Well, actually, I used to be called the music guy a lot, uh, but it has nothing to do with this passage, obviously, but... uh, When I was originally hired here at Spring Garden, I was hired to be an interim music and worship director, Uh, but within less than a year, I was called to stay on permanently. Now, goodness, if you as a church had any idea of how permanent I would be, you probably wouldn't have hired me uh, over 18 years later, but uh, anyway, hindsight, what's that expression? Hindsight is better than foresight or something? I don't know. Anyway. (laughs) Part of my call, though, was an awareness uh, that the role was not uh, solely music. It was not solely a musical role, but was a pastoral role. This was the awareness that I had, but also that the the leadership had when they hired me. And so I was hired as a worship pastor. Now, while my title was pastor and my role and responsibilities were as pastor, for some people, I was, and well, for some of you, I probably still am simply the music guy. No, that didn't bother me too much that I was called the music guy, or I suppose I should say uh, it didn't bother me every time someone called me the music guy. Uh, Some people it was a term in endearment. For some people, they genuinely had no clue um, uh, kind of what, what responsibilities I had, and since they only ever saw me in the band, they honestly thought that the music guy was kind of a full summation of who I am and my role. But I can also recall a few people who used to say it intentionally in a derogatory way. People who didn't like me. Uh, Can you believe it? People didn't like me. I see hands waving up top. And I'm, Clem, is that you saying that you're one of those people who didn't like me? Yeah, thumbs up. Oh, awesome. Finally, after 18 years of knowing you, I finally know how you think about me. Anyway. uh, (laughs) So yes, so believe it or not, some people don't like me. Anyway, so externally, I always just tried to smile and nod my head, but internally, I would have this kind of a variety of thoughts and feelings. Sometimes I'd feel anger if I thought that the person was trying to put me down, or sometimes frustration or sadness. If it was a person that I liked or respected, I would feel sadness that they didn't uh, regard me or validate me as a pastor, you know, whatever, whatever that even means. But most of the time, my response was actually a feeling of insecurity, that I am unworthy or undeserving to be considered a pastor, to be a pastor, or to be validated as a pastor. 
And while in my insecurity I longed to be respected and validated, I also felt like a sham. Undeserving, unworthy, lacking true qualities or gifting or character that's required to live up to the status of pastor. And so whenever someone called me the music guy, I had all of these thoughts and feelings wrestling within myself of whether or not to defend my status or to defend inwardly my identity through my title. And I think many of us have this wrestling in life, striving uh, to be validated, to be affirmed, I think is very human, very natural, and even good. Uh, but it's where we find our validation and our affirmation that is important. And, and many of us, I think, will strive for uh, in titles or in status uh, or how people view us to validate ourselves in people's eyes, to validate ourselves in God's eyes, and I think for many of us to validate ourselves in our own eyes. Now, for myself, I think of place of this place of wrestling is why I love this passage of Scripture so much. Uh, and it's much more than just because I'm a music guy. So let's pray as we, as we uh, continue into it. God, we do ask that you would open our eyes to see Jesus, um, to find ourselves in deeper in awe of you as we look at this uh, beautiful uh, ancient hymn. Last week, uh, Abby spoke on the earlier section uh, in chapter 1 uh, of this letter where Paul talks about preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And she, uh, did I just say Jesus? I think I did. Terrible. I, I, it's only terrible because I have no southern in me at all. I'm starting to emulate uh, Jean. It took me two and a half years, but I'm starting to emulate Jean. Anyway. So Abby challenged us to reflect on how we would describe the gospel in one sentence by sharing a number of these examples of different people's sentences, gospel sentences. It really made it clear that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is unfathomably immense and mysterious. And that it really isn't possible to come up with one formula that covers for every person, though of course many have tried over the years. And many of us who were raised in the church have been told, here's the formula at different ways and different times. But instead of the same formula that would be the same for everyone, the more I think about the gospel, I picture it as uh, Jesus is our entry point to this uh, immense and mysterious reality to which all of our understandings, our paradigms, our... Um, metaphors, our experiences, they all can highlight different parts of this reality, but they never can fully contain the whole, which is why the, the practice of ascending of kind of what the gospel means to us can be so important because it kind of highlights where we have met with Christ in his, uh, the good news, in this immense thing. All we can do is highlight different parts of it. We can never contain the whole. And, but, well, the Apostle Paul, he's someone who authored a good portion of the New Testament in our Bibles, someone who's even wordier than I am, if you can believe it. He himself describes in the gospel the good news. He describes it in different ways at different times. He uses different metaphors and, and with immense complexities. 
And Abby gave us a complex sentence that was, uh, I think, the beginning of a summary of what the gospel means to Paul. And here in Philippians 2, 6 to 11, we find yet another image of the good news of Jesus. And one thing that I love about this section of Philippians is that it likely even wasn't written by Paul. Now, not that I'm against Paul or anything, but there's something to his willingness to use someone else's words to speak to the humility of Christ that I think is worth noting. I also think it's interesting to note that as we look at the way that Christ responds to his, his status, uh, that Paul actually is someone who at different times, he actually spends time defending his own status, while at other times he spends time uh, talking about how uh, that isn't where we find our identity. So I think Paul, like the rest of us, is still unsettled and still learning and growing, even in the Scriptures. So like a lot of places in Scripture, uh, scholars have a variety of different thoughts about this passage. The most generally accepted understanding is that Paul didn't write this section, but that it was a poem, or even more likely that it was actually a hymn or a song that the early church had in its songbook. And Paul is simply quoting it here, like sometimes you'll hear somebody, you know, quoting Amazing Grace or uh, How Can It Be or something like that. One thought is that it might have actually been written by a follower of Jesus named Stephen or some of Stephen's followers and group. And Stephen was actually killed for following Jesus, and it was Paul who approved Stephen's being killed. Now, this happened while Paul was nailing, his name was still Saul, and he wasn't yet, uh, he hadn't yet come to, to meet and follow Jesus. Um, so I really like the idea that Stephen might have written that Paul is quoting uh, a song written by a person that he actually persecuted to death, but now on the side of faith. But ultimately, we can only speculate on whether this was the case. We have no idea who actually wrote it. Either way, this hymn gives us a glimpse of how the early church was thinking about the gospel, about the good news, and, and what it means to worship Jesus. In the context of the letter, we find this hymn right in the middle of a section where Paul is actually talking about ethics. He's talking about how to live. He's encouraging the Philippians how to live out their faith. So as uh, Karen read for us, the section begins at chapter 127, and it goes all the way to chapter 218, so it goes beyond what Karen read to us. Now next week, we're going to continue that reading in the scriptures, but we will be looking more closely at, at all of that ethical teaching that kind of surrounds the hymn. In chapter 2, verse 5, Paul gives us an explanation as to why he's including this song. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So in the middle of the section on ethics, Paul wants to point his readers to, to look to Jesus, to see the mindset of Jesus. Now, a mindset, of course, is not just what a person thinks, but a mindset is how a person thinks and acts, how they, what they prioritize, how they live, wisdom, choices, your attitudes, all of this is wrapped up in the mindset. 
So Paul's teaching on ethics, how we are to live, is based on our understanding of Jesus' mindset, his mindset, his priorities, how he lived, his wisdom, his choices, his attitudes. As we seek to live out our lives, not only modeled after him, this isn't just a, a, a moral idea that we kind of emulate, but actually also, but living in him and him living in us. So let's look more closely at this mindset that Christ wants us to reflect on. Now again, another overview of this poem. It's in two sections. And for those of you who remember high school math, uh, this poem is a, a parabola, 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 parabola. Parabola. <laughs> I don't remember high school math. Anyway, let's see. It would come down, I guess, on the left. So it's essentially uh, starting at the top. It, kind of, it curves down toward the lowest point. And then in kind of a reverse parallelism, it comes back up to the top. The first half is coming down. <laughs> this is basic math, right? At least, anyway. First half is coming down and the second half is going back up. So this is what is happening in this song, in this poem. Another difference between the first and the second half of the song is that the first half, verses 6 to 8, is about what Jesus does. It's what Jesus does in coming down. But then that second half, verses 9 to 11, isn't what Jesus does, but is actually what God the Father does in response. So when we look to the mindset of Jesus, we're looking to this first Half of the, of the parable, par, parabola. So with this in mind, let's read through the hymn again, but pausing to reflect on this picture that it's painting. So verse 6, who, it starts with who, but it's Christ Jesus, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now the first line here in the, in the NIV translated as being in very nature God, the original language here is actually closer to saying in the form of God or in the outward appearance of God. However, in English, that's somewhat confusing because then to, for us, it would seem like Jesus could appear to be God, but not really be God. And this is why the NIV, the New International Translation, they, tried, they decided to translate it as in the very nature of God because they didn't want anyone to misunderstand that, that this is saying Jesus was God. Um, but there's something really cool going on that we lose when we miss out on this word, the form of God. So let's think about this. What is the form of God? Form is something that can be seen. It's something that is visible. It is the shape of. What of God is visible? What is God's shape? What form of God is actually observable where you can look and say, oh, there's the creator of the universe. Now, commentator Walter Hansen points out that in the Old Testament, whenever there is a visible manifestation of God, whether it's Yahweh passing by Moses on Mount Sinai, or God's presence coming to the temple, or in visions by the prophets, in all of these, the form of God is simply described as the glory of God, the glory of the Lord. It is an impossible to describe sort of heavy, radiant light. 
that, the, that they're metaphors and pictures, but the most common descriptor is simply the glory of God, the glory of the Lord. The glory of the infinite, eternal God is God's form, and this is the form of God that Jesus is in at the beginning. Jesus is in the form of God. Jesus in the form of God is Jesus in radiant, powerful, majestic, and mysterious, indescribable glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says that in light of the knowledge of God's glory, the light of the knowledge of God's glory is displayed in the face of Christ. Here is Jesus at the top of that parabola, the full glory of God. Jesus, being in very nature the full glory of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Now, the picture of this word for one's own advantage is one of of grasping, of holding tightly, of keeping for yourself, of using for your own ends. If there's anyone in all of existence who has the right to use the nature of who they are for their own purposes, it's God in all of God's glory. But instead, Jesus doesn't consider his being the glory of God to hold on to or to keep for himself. But rather, he made himself nothing, and he brought himself low. He took on the form, the very nature of one who serves of a slave. He was crafted into the fabric of humanity. The God of glory made into a human who serves. And this kind of sheds a different light on my wrestling with my status as a pastor, or I think on any of our wrestling with our status of how people view us or how we feel we deserve to be acknowledged. What does my appearance to others even mean in light of Jesus, the glory of God, in the glorieslessness of a servant? I think I just made up a word, glorieslessness. That'll get in the Webster's Dictionary in a couple years from now. If Drake can do it, I can too, right? But what's more, Jesus doesn't just come down to be made in human form, So he comes down, become made in human form, but he could have become made in human form and still maintained his right to be treated like a king. But instead, he goes even further down by humbling himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Going from being the glory of the eternal God to obedience unto death, killed like a criminal from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths. This is the mindset of Jesus. And this is what Henry Nouwen calls downward mobility. Now, I figured with Sam uh, being on sabbatical, he's been on sabbatical for over three months now, I figured someone had to quote Henry Nouwen. We haven't heard Henry Nouwen for three months. We're all starving for Henry Nouwen. Downward, I'm just kidding. For those of you who don't know, Sam's uh, just finished a doctorate worth. Henry Nowen was a key, key part uh, of it. But anyway, downward mobility. Uh, allow me to read, well, allow me. You don't have a choice. I guess you could fast forward. Allow me to read some of what Henry Nowen writes in his short uh, but powerful book, The Selfless Way of Christ. I don't have to quote the publisher or anything, right, for copyright purposes. I'm just kidding. Uh, so he says this. The divine way is indeed the downward way. In the center of our faith as Christians stands the mystery that God chose to reveal the divine mystery 
by unreserved submission to the downward pull. God not only chose an insignificant people to carry the word of salvation through centuries, not only chose a small remnant of those people to fulfill God's promises, not only chose a humble girl in an unknown town in Galilee to become the temple of the word, but God also chose to manifest the fullness of divine love in a man whose life led to a humiliating death outside the walls of a city. This mystery was so deeply ingrained in the minds and the hearts of the early Christians that they sang this hymn in, in Philippians. He goes on to say, Christ moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to ignominy. Which is a word that means humiliation and disgrace. I didn't know what that meant. I had to look it up. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth was a life in which all op upward mobility was resisted. The divine way is indeed the downward way. In this humility of Jesus, we find the mindset that Paul is calling us as disciples to have. To see that Jesus, eternal God of glory, brought himself low, humbled himself even to death on a cross. We have to be careful, though, that not to mistake self-loathing or putting yourself down for humility. Humility isn't putting yourself down, it is laying yourself down. Humility actually includes knowing who you are, truly knowing who you are, which includes self-awareness not only of the not-so-great stuff, but also of the good and the praiseworthy parts of yourself. Humility is knowing who you are, but not thinking so highly of yourself that you put yourself before others. It is knowing you are a beloved child of God. It is knowing you are a great person, a person of great worth, but in that knowledge that you lay yourself down for the good of others. Look to Jesus. In the form of God, the glory of God, he knew exactly who he was. He didn't put himself down. He was like, oh man, I suck. I'm just going to go lay in the dirt, right? He knew who he was, yet he was willing to humble himself not grasping to his own rights, but laying them down, laying himself down for the good of others. Humility isn't putting yourself down. It is laying yourself down. Turning to now and again, speaking about humility's downward mobility, uh, he writes this, I'm not denigrating ambition, nor am I against progress and success. But true growth is something other than the uncontrolled drive for upward mobility, in which making it to the top becomes its own goal, and in which ambition no longer serves a wider ideal. There is a profound difference between false ambition for power and true ambition to love and serve. It is a difference between trying to raise ourselves up and trying to lift up our fellow human beings. The ambition for true ambition to love and serve. The difference between trying to raise ourselves up and trying to lift up our fellow human beings. This is the way of Christ. And this is the path that we are called to follow. 
And this is the mindset of Christ that brought him to the point where he was obedient even to death on a cross. However, the song doesn't end there. The path of downward mobility does not end in defeat. It does not end in death. But oppositely and paradoxically, the downward path is actually the way to life. Because of Jesus' downward mobility of humility, we read in uh, Philippians again, continuing, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of his being brought low, Jesus is then raised up again, raised up that every knee in all of creation will bow down and will worship him. Everything that has a tongue will speak his name and praise him and declare him as Lord. Now, one thing, whenever we read, I think, any of the letters in the New Testament, we always need to keep in mind, uh, if possible, the culture that Paul and the Philippians, that the, the, they lived in, in first century Roman Empire. Everyone in the culture was supposed to bow down their knee and to confess one Lord, and that was Caesar. Caesar, the Roman emperor, was considered to be divine and was supposed to be, as Roman citizens, was supposed to be their one Lord. And in fact, many Christians were getting thrown into prison or even killed because they would not bow down and confess. They would not bow down before the image of Caesar and call Caesar Lord. And so in this song, while they were singing this, the song that Paul quotes, and he says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is calling them to push against the very fabric of society and of the empire. And people are getting killed for, si for singing this and for saying this. Yet, this was good news. Because unlike the emperor who hoarded and abused power, oppressing many people and demanding to be exalted, here is one who is truly and fully God, who is humbling himself and being brought low. And it is because of this that he is then raised up and exalted above all other lords. Jesus is Lord. It's utterly awesome. And it is so opposite to everything that our society and our world is built upon. Yet this is the God we worship. And this is the downward way that we are called to walk on the path of life. Next week we are going to spend, as I said, some time looking at Paul. How Paul tells us to respond to this amazing gospel. Uh, but today, uh, I will want us to simply sit in the awe and wonder of this gospel of a downwardly mobile God of glory. And I'd like to leave you with these words uh, from Henry Nouwen as the band uh, comes up and gets ready to, to lead us uh, into response. I just realized I marked the wrong page. 
The disciple is the one who follows Jesus on their downward path and thus enters with him into new life. The gospel radically subverts the presuppositions of our upwardly mobile society. It is a jarring and unsettling challenge. Yet somewhere deep in our hearts, we already know that success and fame and influence, power and money do not give us the inner joy and peace that we crave. Somewhere we can even sense a certain envy of those who have shed all false ambitions and found a deeper fulfillment in their relationship with God. Yes, somewhere we can even get a taste of that mysterious joy and the smile of those who have nothing to lose. And then we begin to perceive that the downward road is not the road to hell, but the road to heaven. Amen.